I, I love meeting with you and singing to Jesus with you and praying to Jesus with you. It's one of the highlights of my life. And I just want to say thank you for engaging in worship. We're not spectators here, right? For people who are here to meet with our King. And I'm so grateful for you. I shared with you two weeks ago the vision of Lift. That Lift is not a new program that we're installing in our church, but it's the clear direction in which we're going, in which we are going to be looking to reach the nations and our neighbors with the gospel that indeed we are going to lift our eyes upward and outward to reach people with the gospel. We get this idea of lifting our eyes upward from Psalm 121. We just sang it together in which the psalmist says, I lift my eyes unto the hills. From where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. That we are a people who do not look inward. We do not look at ourselves. We do not look at our problems. And we don't look at the things of this world. We are lifting our eyes unto the Lord. That we are a people that Hebrews 12, we are fixing our eyes upon Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. That for us, we are a people who are lifting our eyes upward. But we are also going to be a people who lift our eyes outward. We are looking unto the harvest of people who matter to God and whom Jesus came and gave his life for. That we are a people who are lifting our eyes to the mission field in which God has called us. We looked at John chapter four, which Jesus met with the woman at the well. And it's there that he revealed himself to her as the Messiah. She makes a beeline back to Sychar, goes to the town square, gives a testimony and an invitation. She says, I met a man who told me everything I've ever done. Could this be the Messiah? And she invites the town to head out towards the water well, where Jesus is there with his disciples, who are thinking about lunchtime instead of the matters of the kingdom. And Jesus tells them, guys, right now it's not about the food in your stomachs. I came to do the will of him who sent me. That is my food. And then John 4, 35, he says, I say to you, lift up your eyes, the harvest. And Jesus is directing the gaze of the eyes of the disciples to the entire town of Sychar, marching out to the water well. It is there that Jesus is saying, guys, this is the harvest. It's people. People who are far from God, but people whom I came to rescue. People who matter to the heart of God. And that is going to be true for us. We are going to lift our eyes upward and outward to the harvest. How are we going to do this? Well, I'll share with you the three ways that we are going to do this. The first is with Lift Local. Through Compassion Ministries, we're going to be looking to meet the needs of people right here in our community. That because of the pandemic, inflation, and migration, our community is changing. And we want to be about being a church that is caring for our neighbors by loving them well and pointing them to the gospel. Whether it's through food distribution, counseling ministries, English as a second language, Spanish as a second language, addiction recovery. We want to help people right here in our community to be restored into a right relationship with God and simultaneously meeting their needs. We're also not only going to lift local, we're going to lift global. We are going to be, as a church, lifting our eyes to the nations. 
We're going to mobilize and equip you as a church to be missionaries right where God has called you to be. How are we going to do this? We're going to train every Westwood member in evangelism. I, as your pastor, want you to have confidence that when you have an opportunity to share Jesus with someone who doesn't know Christ, you can speak with confidence and clarity the gospel, that you would be equipped to lead people to faith in Jesus. And oh, what better way to give your life than to expending it out to seeing people come to faith in Jesus, leveraging your influence right in the community where God has already placed you, on your college campus, on the ball field, in the classroom, in your workplace, leveraging the gospel. We're gonna commission all Westwood members as missionaries, that you would see yourself as someone who has been called to this city, to this country for such a time as this. You already know the language, the culture, and the people. And you leverage what God has entrusted to you to be a missionary. That we are indeed sojourners. Peter says that we are elect exiles. We have a citizenship in heaven. We are anticipating a kingdom that is to come. That we are not home yet. And therefore, we see ourselves as missionaries planted here to reach people with the gospel. And by 2027, we're going to be sending 100 people every year on international mission trips, taking the gospel to those who have never heard. We're going to lift local. We're going to lift global. And then thirdly, we're going to lift churches. We want to see healthy, gospel-centered churches established in every community in Shelby County. Where there is a healthy gospel-centered church, the people of God flourish and more people are reached with the gospel. How are we going to do this? We're going to begin establishing home groups throughout different communities throughout Shelby County. We're going to plant in the next five years, two Hispanic churches. We're planting our first one this August the 6th. We'll be starting and launching Westwood and Espanol. And I can't wait to see the people of we're going to start reaching with the gospel through our Hispanic church plants. We're also looking to establish five healthy English-speaking gospel-centered churches all throughout Shelby County, whether it's through church multi-site, church planting, or through church adoptions, where we come alongside churches that are struggling and we strengthen them, remind them of the gospel, and focus them on the mission that God has instructed us for us to have as a church. We're going to start a Westwood training center for pastors and church leaders. And we're, I, and y'all, the stories I could tell you of how God is already moving in so many of these ways. And I can't wait to see how God uses our church in the years to come in reaching more people with the gospel. Last week, I, I laid out before us two of the three challenges that we are to respond with. First, we talked about the necessity of praying. We're a church that's going to pray. We looked at Luke 10:2, where Jesus said, pray to the Lord of the harvest to raise up workers. We challenged our entire church to set our alarms on our cell phones for 10.02 a.m. And at 10.02 every day, except Sundays, because your alarm's gonna go off while I'm preaching, it's gonna remind you to pray Luke 10:2. Pray to the Lord of the harvest to raise up workers. We challenge our church to go. We are a going church. We're going to pray and we're going to go. Today, we're going to look at the third way to respond, and that is to give, to financially respond with joy-filled generosity. 
And this truth of joy-filled generosity is what the Apostle Paul is driving home in 2 Corinthians chapter 9. Let me show you. Grab your Bible and turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 9. The Apostle Paul planted the church at Corinth on his second missionary journey. It is there that he laid out exactly what a church should look like. But unfortunately, the church at Corinth began looking more like the world than like Christ. So he writes 1 Corinthians to correct their theology and their practice, to point them to Jesus as the model for which they are to become like. What we see in 2 Corinthians is Paul's heart of humility towards this church, towards these people whom he cares for them, and he wants to see them grow and mature spiritually. And when we get to 2 Corinthians chapters 8 and chapters 9, Paul, Paul begins to list out the motivations for uh, why and how we as believers should give. Now, the Bible talks a lot about giving. Money is a big deal to Jesus because the money is a window into the human heart. Did you know that Jesus spoke more about money than he did about sex, than he did about heaven, than he did about hell? In fact, Jesus said, where your treasure is there, your heart will be also, meaning your heart follows where you put your money. You can see through the spending habits of people to see what they truly value. Thankfully, the scriptures give us encouragement, wisdom, instruction, and even insight on how we as followers of Jesus can steward and manage our money well. But before we jump into the motivations and how we are to give, I think it's important that you grab hold of this foundational truth for money management. And it's this, God is the owner and you are the manager. This is essential. This is foundational bedrock that you must grab hold of to be a faithful steward of God's resources. Indeed, God owns everything. Psalm 24.1 says, The earth and everything in it, the world and its inhabitants, belong to the, the Lord. All of creation is His. All of who you are is His. Your stuff, your home, your clothes, your money, your retirement, your cars, all that you have is His. He is the owner, capital O. And since God is the owner, we are the managers. The Bible sometimes will use the word stewards. God has entrusted us with what we possess. And everything that you possess is a gift from God for you to steward, for you to manage as those who will one day give an account for our management. We have the privilege of using the resources that God has entrusted to us as means of advancing the gospel. We're going to unpack that some more here in just a moment. And as Paul is writing this letter, there is a situation that has come up for the church in Jerusalem persecution has increased so significantly for the church at Jerusalem, they're facing severe poverty. 
And so Paul is going to these churches that he helped plant to rally together financial resources, a collection to take to the church in Jerusalem. And in chapters eight and nine, he lists out these motivations, these reasons for why Christ followers are to give. Well, for the sake of our time today, we're only going to look at two. And I want you to see what they are here in 2 Corinthians chapter nine, beginning with verse six. And the scripture says this, the point is this, the person who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And the person who sows generously will also reap generously. Each person should do as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or out of compulsion, since God loves a cheerful giver. Right here in the text, we see two motivations for giving. The first motivation is this, giving is to be generous. Right there in verse six, Paul is using agricultural language to describe how believers are to be generous in their giving. He says there in verse six, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Like a farmer who throws out a few seeds here and there, won't be surprised that when the time comes for the harvest, he doesn't have anything to grab hold of. Paul's using common sense here, y'all. This is simple logic. Stingy planting equals a stingy crop. But the generous farmer who casts out an abundance of seeds, Paul argues, will reap a generous crop. The point Paul is making, Westwood, is don't be stingy, but rather be generous in your giving to God. The second truth we see in the text is that not only giving is to be generous, but secondly, giving is to be joy-filled. Giving is to be joy-filled. Look at verse 7. Paul says, each person should do as he has decided in his heart. Not reluctantly or out of compulsion, since God loves a cheerful giver. You see, our, gov- our, our giving comes from a, a willing heart, okay? Not out of reluctance. It, it, we, we give out of a free heart, not out of compulsion. It's, it's like this. Giving is never a have to for a believer. It's always a get to. We get to invest our resources in the gospel. We get to be generous and joy-filled in our giving. For God loves a cheerful giver. I love that word there in verse seven, cheerful. It's where we get the word hilarious. It's this over-the-top joy. Have you ever laughed so hard you started crying? All right, so this week, y'all, I saw this video of these people who do this water bottle challenge okay, where they tie a string on this full water bottle, they tie it onto a ceiling fan, and the water bottle is going around the room like this, and they blindfold themselves. And I sat there for about five minutes crying. I was laughing so hard as people kept getting smacked in the face with a water bottle. It was fantastic. (laughs) I mean, I was like, this is so good. I wonder if my family could play this game. (laughs) Oh, you're so good, y'all. Y'all, y'all it didn't take months to get me laughing, okay? Like, it was so good. Well, that over-the-top laughter, 
That's the same word that Paul's using there in verse 7. That God loves a cheerful, a hilarious, over-the-top, filled-with-joy giver. And God loves it when we give with such joy and abundance, where we're just laughing with joy. Why? It's the gospel. The gospel compels generosity. That God is not a stingy God. God is a generous God. He generously gave us his best, his one and only son. And he gives us an overwhelming amount of blessing in and through his son. And when we personally experience the power of the cross, when we experience all that Christ has accomplished through his victorious resurrection on the third day, it changes us. And when you realize that this Jesus was sent by God for you, that Jesus came and gave his life for you at the cross, and he died in your place, his body was broken for your forgiveness. And through his shed blood, you are forgiven of all of your sin. And he gladly, willingly, voluntarily goes to the cross on your behalf, absorbs the full wrath of God towards your sin. And that anybody who turns from their sin and trusts in Jesus by faith, your heart is transformed. You become a new creation in Christ. Indeed, all that is true about the benefits of knowing Christ are then applied to you, that you are forgiven, adopted, accepted. You have an inheritance. He gives you a name. He calls you his own. He gives you a citizenship in heaven, promises you a future with him, says there's coming a day in which your faith will become sight. Everything changes and hinges on the gospel. And when you realize that that tomb is empty outside of Jerusalem, that Jesus defeated death, it means that you too will defeat death. That death no longer has the last word on all who bank their souls upon Christ. And this gospel is so precious. It's so generous. It compels us to want to be generous in our giving. You see, the gospel is what makes us eager to join God in giving in what he has already given us through his son. It's a joy-filled generosity. But what does that look like? What does joy-filled generosity really do? Well, I put these six things in your notes. There are more than these six, but for the sake of our time, I wanted to lay these out for you. All these come from Scripture. I want you to see first, joy-filled generosity reminds us to not make life about ourselves. Our flesh tries to deceive us into believing that our lives are about us. Your heart lies to you every day to try to get you to think that your life is about you. And so when you are filled with joy-filled generosity, it reminds you of the gospel that points you away from yourself. In fact, Jesus continually points us away from ourselves and he points us to himself where we find life. Luke 9.23, if any man would come after me, let him deny himself. Pick up his cross and follow me. You take your eyes off of yourself and you fix them upon Jesus and that is where you find life. Joy-filled generosity reminds you that your life is not about you. Secondly, joy-filled generosity 
challenges us to trust God with our money. That every time you give, you are declaring with your money, God, I trust you. I'm loosening my grip on this brief, temporary life and all of these resources I have, and I'm trusting you with what you have entrusted to me. Thirdly, joy-filled generosity exposes us to the priority of our hearts. Your expenses reveal what is most important to you in your life. If you want to know what your heart really looks like when it comes to priorities, look at your bank statement. It testifies clearly where your heart is. Jesus said where your heart is, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Where you put your money is where your heart's going to go. Fourthly, joy-filled generosity reminds us all that we have comes from God. Back to the foundational truth that we just covered, that God is the owner and we are the stewards. We are the managers. And anything we have is because God has graciously given it to us. Whether we have a lot or we have a little, it all comes from God. And he gives and he takes away. Blessed be his name. Fifthly, joy-filled generosity invites us to invest in the kingdom. It's amazing to think about this, that God invites you and me to join him in advancing his kingdom through our giving. Isn't that amazing? God could accomplish his ways and his purposes without us. He could. And yet he invites us in to work with him, to participate in his work. So that when you and I are financially investing our resources for the sake of the gospel, we are joining him and we are investing in the kingdom. That it's like this, when you and I give, people come to faith in Jesus. Talk about a return on investment. That is an ROI. And that's what we get to do through our giving, which points us to number six. It points us to a future reward for faithfulness. Jesus said, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal. Store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy. Where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is there, your heart will be also. Hear me on this. God always rewards the faithfulness of his people. God always rewards the faithfulness of his people. He always sees. He always knows. He will not forget your sacrifices. He will not neglect your generosity. He is faithful. And he promises to reward the faithfulness of his people. So whether you make minimum wage or seven figures, it's not about the amount. It's about your heart. Being joy-filled and generous with whatever God has entrusted to you. And he promises, I will reward your faithfulness. 42 years ago, when Westwood was planted, the people prayed and they served 
and they sacrificed and they gave in order for the church to continue. Now, in our early days, there were some really hard days. There were some days in which the people at Westwood did not know if the church could stay open. Did you know that people sold boats? They sold jewelry. They took out second mortgages. Teenagers sold their TVs so that the church could keep their doors open. It's amazing to think about. Let's never forget the sacrifices that were made so that you and I could gather and have a church that we could come and belong to. And it's amazing to think about through their sacrifices, God has used this church to reach thousands of people with the gospel, to send millions of dollars to the nations, to see healthy churches planted throughout Shelby County. It's amazing to think about. If the people had not sacrificed four decades ago and Westwood had to close their doors, how many people would not be followers of Jesus today? It's humbling to think about. But because the people were eager to see the church thrive and flourish, they sacrificed so that the gospel could go forth. Now, the majority of us in this room were not here when this church began. But aren't you thankful for those early church members who wanted to see the gospel flourish and to see a church established here in this community? I'm so grateful for their sacrifices. Two weeks ago, I spoke with one of our founding members of Westwood. Uh, every Sunday, uh, he comes to the last service and he sits right about there. And he sits in the same place. So don't sit in his seat, by the way. <laughs> he said to me with tears in his eyes, the people who are here are the answered prayers of God's people from back in the very beginning. We prayed for them. And I continue to look in amazement at what God has done and is doing in our church. And with tears welling up in his eyes, he was just overwhelmed with gratitude for you. And he looks back upon the sacrifices four decades ago, and he is so thankful for the, the, the sacrifices they made so that we could have this, that the gospel can flourish. And can, can we take just a moment? Can I just celebrate you? I am so grateful for your generosity. I am so proud to be your pastor. Through the joyful generosity of you, his people, I am so thankful. There it goes. I love it. There it is. I love it. I am not upset at that at all. That is awesome. Keep praying that Lord of the harvest. 10.02. Every year. I love it, guys. This is great. This is so good. This is so good. I'm so thankful for you. God has been so faithful and kind to our church. And he has blessed and used the joy-filled generosity of you. And I'm so thankful for you. Every year, uh, we have an audit in which we auditors come in uh, for an entire week. In fact, I think they're coming tomorrow, actually. And they, we open up our books. We give them everything because we want to be above board and above reproach in everything. And every year, they report back to us almost these same three things every year. This is what they say. 
They praise our church for our integrity and our management, for using best practices, and every year they remark on the generosity of you. I'm so thankful for you. I'd also like to celebrate what God has done in our church. 17 years ago, Westwood made the move from the Thompson Road campus to our current campus. In fact, there's a, a, a chart, a picture I'd like to throw up there. If you can leave it up there for me. Thank you. I want to kind of explain to you what this chart looks like. The yellow shows what the debt was originally when the church came here. It was $9.6 million. Immediately, the church needed a small group's building space and parking, which then led to the orange one, which was $11.2 million in debt. Over the course of 11 years, the church uh, paid off uh, just around $2 million. They got down to an $8.5 million. At the end of 2019, our church refinanced, and our church debt has gone from 85 to $5.5 million. We have paid off in three years, $3 million in debt. Thank you. Thank you. I'm so grateful for your generosity. We've paid off more in the last three years than we did in the previous 12. Like we're attacking this debt. I got a text from our treasurer a couple days ago in which he said, hey, by the way, next month at our next debt payment, that debt will come down to 5.1, okay? So we're going after this thing. And I'm so grateful for your generosity. We're on pace to be debt-free at the end of 2029, unless someone here can write me a check for $5.1 million. <laughs> I've prayed for it, y'all. Don't, don't, I've prayed. <laughs> but the reality is also this, that debt is real. It's something that we continually strive to eliminate. Uh, I don't want us to miss the celebration of how far we've come, and we've come a long way. And I just want us to just imagine what we could do with an extra million dollars a year that we get to leverage to refuel the gospel once that debt is retired. And it's going to happen, but we're going to keep trusting the Lord. We're going to keep being good stewards of what God has entrusted to us. And we're committed to paying that thing down as fast as the funds will allow. I'm so thankful for God's kindness and faithfulness and your generosity. But we also have a challenge. We're currently facing a challenge. It's space. Three weeks ago, our kids' worship space had 110 kids in a room designed for 80. Praise Jesus for that. Our student ministry is growing. Next week, we're commissioning 40 seniors. And yet, for the past 11 years, students have been having to use. Yeah, can we celebrate Jesus for that? That's awesome. I'm so grateful for Corey and his leadership. But the challenge is that for the last 11 years, student ministries had to use kid space. And if you have kids or teenagers in our church, you understand that we're continually juggling space solutions week in and week out. Praise God that our church is growing and our on-campus ministries are as healthy as they've ever been. But space continues to be a challenge that we face as a church. 
And as our church continues to grow, as we're looking to reach more people with the gospel, we're going to continually face space challenges. We're exploring, we are praying with leaders within our church over what additional space might look like to provide relief and more opportunities for ministry, to reach more people with the gospel. You see, money and buildings are just tools. It's not the mission. People are the mission. It's about reaching people with the gospel. And yet the tools that are necessary for us to utilize as a church, we're facing some challenges And God has been so kind to our church. For the past five months, uh, I've been meeting with our Lyft leadership team, and we've been praying over how we as a church can continue to faithfully steward our resources through your weekly tithes and offerings, address space needs, and fund the Lyft initiative. But through your generosity, by God's grace, we have continued to exceed budget year after year. We've been attacking the debt, as you've already seen, And currently, we have $200,000 as seed money to help get Lyft started, to help us start reaching more people with the gospel. And what we're going to learn more in the days ahead through our Lyft leadership teams, through Lyft Local, Lyft Global, and Lyft Churches, we're going to start identifying the needs that we're going to have to help reach more people with the gospel. So Kenneth, what are you calling us to right now? What can we do right now? There's three things. I'm going to ask all of us to do together. The first is this, is pray. I want you to pray. Would you pray that God would give you wisdom on how you can respond with a 2 Corinthians 9 response of joy-filled generosity? Would you pray for church leadership that God would give them wisdom and grace to make wise decisions on how we can be as faithful with the resources that God has entrusted to us. Would you pray that God would allow us to leverage all that we have for the sake of the gospel? Yeah, I want to reach as many people as I can before I get to go home to glory. I, I want to invite you to go with me. Let's do that. And we get to do it through faithful, generous giving of God's people. You get to participate in this and we do it together. But hear me, it takes all of us. And so I wanna ask you to pray. The second is to evaluate, evaluate. Take some time as a family to evaluate your spending habits, your giving patterns and pray over your budget. Pray over how you're spending your money. Ask for God to give you wisdom and direction of how you can, as a family, faithfully steward every dollar as faithfully as you can. Maybe you're here today and and you've never given before. I want you to know, I'm so glad you're here. And this is a great opportunity for you to begin giving in which you get to join thousands of other people and investing in the gospel through joy-filled generosity. Maybe you have been giving And it's time to evaluate and say, okay, God, what does the next step look like? How can I step out in faith and grow in my trust and dependence upon you? Or I'm giving at such a level where it's like, okay, God, unless you come through. It's amazing to me. I was talking with somebody a few weeks ago in which she said this. She said, our family budget doesn't make sense. It just doesn't. We are giving at such a level that we are so uncomfortable and yet month after month, God continues to provide. And if I can just give a a brief word of testimony, Christy and I have seen that in our marriage. 
that God, by his grace, he always provides when you step out in faith and you trust him. So I want to invite you to pray. I want you to invite you to evaluate. And then thirdly is to prepare. Is to prepare. Okay, Kenneth, prepare for what? On September the 10th, on September the 10th, we're going to have a big give day. I love it. Keep that prayers going. I love it. It's a big give day. What is this big give for? What is this offering for? We don't know yet. Our plan as the Lyft leadership and our budget and finance team meets together, as we're beginning to identify the needs that we have to reach more people with the gospel, we'll be sharing with you throughout the summer about what that offering is going to look like about how we can faithfully steward the resources given through that big give day on September the 10th as a way to use it to help us reach more people with the gospel. So you prepare, okay? You've got 133 days. You've got 19 weeks. Some of the teenagers in here are sitting here thinking, oh my goodness, school starts in 19 weeks. (laughs) We're giving you a runway to prepare for September the 10th, for a big give day in which you can begin setting aside dollars to give. And we'll be revealing to you in the weeks and months ahead as to what that is going to look like. When Christy and I first got married in 2004, we made a commitment in our marriage to try and practice biblical stewardship. And there have been times in which it's just like our, as I said earlier, our budget just doesn't make sense. We're like, God, how is this going to work? And yet every time he provides. And, I, I, and you'd think, all right, I'm 41 years old. You'd think by now I'd realize that God will always provide. And I still find myself saying, oh my goodness, how are we going to do this? But he's faithful. You can trust him. You can trust him with your heart with your soul, with your eternity, and with your money. For he's a faithful God. And he promises, I'm going to be with you. And I'm going to provide for you. And I'm going to show myself faithful. So can I invite you to pray, to evaluate, and prepare.